Last week was a little bit heavy, and then um, somebody asked me if it was going to get lighter quicker, and no, it doesn't. Tonight's kind of heavy as well, and so since last night was or last week was heavy, uh, tonight's going to be heavy. I thought at least I get to kind of pick how we start, so I'm going to pick to start a little bit light, and uh, I, I felt like the best way to start was with a quote um, for what might be the greatest movie, the greatest cinematic triumph of our generation, the movie Dumb and Dumber. Um, I love that movie. And I remember when Megan and I first met, I feel like in one of our earliest conversations, we found out that we both liked that movie. And it was like, okay, like we have enough in common to get married. When should we do this? Um, <laughs> it would have been a deal breaker if she hadn't. But uh, towards the beginning of Dumb and Dumber, if you've seen this movie, uh, Harry and Lloyd, they're in their uh, car that looks like a dog. And they're driving it all around town. And they're looking for jobs. And they finally get back uh, late at night. And uh, they get out, and Harry slams the door and says, I can't believe we spent the whole day driving around town, and there's not a single job, zip, not a zilch, to which Lloyd replies, yeah, unless you want to work 40 hours a week. Um, I think it's really funny. You know, <laughs> it's okay. I, I, I can't anticipate you guys, I mean, like, I'm not good at that type of, like, quoting movies. And uh, I thought, I think it's funny. I think it's hilarious. And I think the reason we want to start with that is because it kind of captures um, really... <laughs> You know, it's funny, but it, like, it does capture kind of a posture of our generation that we tend to want great things apart from great sacrifice. We tend to want something great, like a job, 40 hour, you know, a job that will provide uh, and will make us feel fulfilled and purposeful and, you know, exactly the hours we want, but we don't want to work 40 hours a week. You probably even know people who are like that, who just graduated, got done, and you're kind of like disillusioned that they have to like work some trivial, menial job. It's like, well, yeah, like it takes years of blood and sweat and sacrifice to like finally work a job that you enjoy whatsoever. I mean, a lot of us kind of understand this, but we struggle with this, don't we? We struggle to kind of understand that which requires, uh, that we want great things, but we tend to not be willing to kind of give uh, great sacrifice or want to sacrifice deeply or greatly. And the reason that applies so much to what we're going to talk about tonight is because I think that principle um, is seen most clearly in many of our postures towards uh, love, that we tend to really want great love. I, I think we're all, I mean, no matter kind of what you believe, if this is your first time, if you got kind of roped into coming here and you've already decided not to come back a second time, like even if that's you, you want love. You love the idea of a relationship and deep friendships. And even if like marriage freaks you out and you say like, I'm never going to get married, or I'm not going to get married until I'm in my 50s or 60s. I mean, the reality is, is there's some part of you that likes the idea Getting married, meeting somebody who will accept you and care for you and take care of you, you guys having babies, those babies loving the home that they grow up in, respecting you, uh, looking fondly back on their childhoods. I think we all kind of, no matter our backgrounds, upbringings, religious beliefs, we all love love. Uh, We tend to just not think that we should sacrifice a whole lot for it. In fact, I would just maybe challenge you to ask yourself that question even right now. you know, it's, there's no doubt that we all want love. I guess the question I would ask you is, have, have you ever asked yourself the question of, like, wh- what is it going to require of you in order to obtain that love? Like, what is it going to require you to give up? What is it going to require for you to sacrifice? And I think it's important for us to ask that question because I just don't see where else in the culture it's really being asked. It seems like kind of everywhere else in the culture, uh, great love is being marketed to us. I mean, I think just, you know, maybe give you a few examples and make this practical. Like, I see this all the time. Uh, come with like, the online dating industry. I know many of you have done this. I'm not kind of hating on this. It's a billion-dollar industry, so a lot of you have done it in the room. Okay, I know that. It's totally okay. Um, but, you know, my observation about it, and probably a lot of what maybe got you to sign up for it, is just how easy it is, right? Like, every, no matter kind of what the company is, it sells itself 
on its ease. It's like, look at this couple. They got married. They had babies. And they didn't have to worry about being compatible. Uh, they didn't have to pay anything. They just had to do this free trial. And they, you know, all of a sudden, they just put a little bit of their information. And our team of experts, like, worked out this compatibility formula. And boom, they met. They got married. And they've lived happily ever after. No conflict. Look at them laughing. Doesn't it, don't you want that to be you? Like, doesn't that seem wonderful? You're like, yeah, it does. Like, where can I sign up? Or, you know, I think my observation is that... Um, you know, again, I think in this series, we're not just trying to hit on romantic love. We're also just trying to hit on kind of anybody in our lives that we love. And I think, like, especially now that I'm a dad, my observation is how often companies and businesses market, uh, particularly to those of us who, who are men with children, um, they really know how to kind of pull at our heartstrings. I see this all the time with, like, resort places. Um, it's always like, Dad, don't you want to be the hero? Like, isn't Mom stressed out? Like, Look at this picture of this woman getting a massage. Like, doesn't she look happy? Like, that could be your wife. Like, she could finally not be stressed. But, like, look at these kids. They are cheering you on as a hero as you have, like, a squirt gun fight out in our luxurious pool. And, you know, and they never show, like, anything difficult. They don't show, like, your daughter melting down because you didn't buy the $45 Mickey Mouse tank top. And it's like, we got to go. Like, we already spent too much money. They don't show you melting down because your kids aren't having fun. And you're like, do you know how much money we spend on this vacation? Start having fun. They never show that. It's just like, all you have to do is come here, give us a little bit of money. It's on sale right now. Isn't that really great news? And you can be a hero. And your kids will love you. And your wife will love you. And you will live happily ever after. And I think over and over and over again, uh, we are kind of told that love, I mean, we desperately desire it, but it's kind of, it can be obtained for very little. It's almost like an item on the dollar menu that we don't have to pay very much for. We can get a lot of it for very, very little from us. And I think here's the deal is I think all of us in this moment, I mean, we've probably, you know, we've probably um, bought into that at times, but I think all of us in this moment, we kind of think critically and objectively and logically, like we know it doesn't work that way. We know it doesn't work that way with love. We know it doesn't work that way with anything in life that actually matters. Anything in life that matters, you know, requires a tremendous amount of work, a tremendous amount of sacrifice for you to really obtain it. If you want to be in really great shape, like you're going to have to work really hard. You're going to have to sacrifice and bleed and be tremendously disciplined in order for you to be in really great shape. Some of you do that. If you want to be great at your job, it doesn't just happen. You have to bleed and sacrifice and put a ton of hours in in order to thrive and advance in your career. And it's the same way. If you want to be a great dad, if you want to be a great spouse, if you want to be a great significant other, if you want to be a great friend, if you want to be a great sibling, it is going to take work. You are going to have to sacrifice. And I just don't see anybody else coming with that. But the story does. The story does. I mean, really, I think what we're going to see tonight is that you know, we all desire great love in our lives. And I think this story, this next part of the story that we're going to see is going to say, if you really want to take a step towards great love, you're going to have to take a step towards tremendous, deep sacrifice. Like, you're not going to have to just ask the question of, like, how can I get love, but what am I willing to give up in order to really receive it and obtain it? And so I think this story, I, this is why I love this story. It's, like, so countercultural. You're not going to see this advertised. You're not going to see this marketed. Um, you're not going to see this on Match.com. You're not. But it's true, and it's really good, and we really, really need this. And so we're going to dive into it, and uh, we're going to do the same thing we kind of did last week. We're just going to walk through the story, try to kind of really feel ourselves in the weight and the emotion uh, of it. In particular, we're talking about the relationship between love and sacrifice and kind of give you maybe an overview of what we're going to do 
uh, from here is we're going to talk about then kind of uh, in the story and kind of implications of the story for people and their sacrifice, okay? That's kind of, so we're going to be thinking about four people in particular and their sacrifice. And the first person we're going to look at is Naomi. The first person we're going to look at is Naomi and her uh, sacrifice. Now, um, if, let, let me kind of catch you up on what we did uh, last week. If you remember last week, uh, Naomi and her family of four, uh, they're living in this town called Bethlehem. And Bethlehem has a famine strike, and so her and her family of four gets up, and they uh, immigrate to Moab. Uh, in Moab, they heard there was food there, but it was a really hard place to immigrate to, and it was really hard for them. And it was particularly hard for Naomi because she gets there, her husband dies, and then a few years after that, uh, her sons die. And so this woman, she, you know, she moves here with only her family, and she is left with her not her son, it's not her, not her husband. Um, she is left with nothing other than her two daughters-in-law, who are now, uh, orf- uh, who are now widows as well, um, Ruth and Orpah. Ruth and Orpah. So just kind of, you know, the names maybe aren't familiar yet, but so you got Naomi, she's the mother-in-law, and you got Ruth, and you got Orpah. And so they are now here um, trying to kind of figure out what to do next. And so here's what they do next. Look at verse 6. It says, Then she arose, that's Naomi, with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. So if you kind of, let's look deeply at this. So basically what's happened is Naomi, she's in Moab, and she catches word that the famine has ended back in her hometown, and she decides to go back, uh, both her as well as her two daughters-in-law, and so they start making the trip back from Moab back to uh, Bethlehem. Now, here's what you kind of have to understand if the rest of the story is going to make sense, is the reason that Ruth and Orpah are going with their mother-in-law, Naomi, is not because um, it's culturally expected of them or just kind of like relationally expected of them to move back to Bethlehem with their mother-in-law. Like that's, that's we're, we're pretty sure, and you'll see this from the story, like that's not why they're making the trip. The reason they're making the trip is probably because they're trying to kind of extend a courtesy to an old family friend. So like the distance between Bethlehem and Moab, we're not really sure exactly how far it was. It was about 60 miles. That's about the distance from where I'm standing right now to Fort Collins. And so like for, for an old aged widow with no sons or husband to make a trip like that alone, like that would have been tremendously dangerous and unsafe. And so probably what we're seeing here is that you know, Ruth and, and uh, Orpah are like, okay, we'll help you get back. We'll help you get back home. Uh, and then we'll kind of make our way back to Moab and continue with our lives. This is like us saying goodbye. Now, uh, this is particularly true, um, not just because this would have been culturally expected, but what we said is also um, personally expected as well. And the reason is because you have to understand up to this point, uh, Naomi is really the definition of damaged goods. Like, she is the woman um, you meet at a party, and she starts kind of talking about what's going on in her life, and you're like, hey, you know, I see some friends over there, and, uh, like, how can I get out of this conversation as quickly as possible? Um, Her life was an absolute mess. In fact, I read one historian this week. He wrote about Naomi. He said, kind of the circumstances of what's going on in her life, that to be an aged widow without children was the worst fate for an Israelite woman. And so that's what Naomi is. She's a widow. She has no husband. She has no sons. She's old. 
And so she has no prospect of getting these things again. And in this culture uh, that was dominated by men, and to, and to have a man in your life means you're provided for, you're protected, uh, you're, you're going to survive. To have none of that and no prospect of that means, like, you're the type of person I'm going to try to avoid as much as possible. Now, what's interesting to me, and this is why I really appreciate Naomi, is, you know, if it's me, I'm trying to make people feel really sorry for me, but she, like, knew it. You know, she was just like, I know you guys don't want to be with me, and so peace, see ya. Like, look at verse 8. She, she knows, like, this trip together, it just means goodbye. So in verse 8, that's why she goes. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, return. So you see kind of those two firm commands. Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Which this, that was kind of like a customary way in Hebrew of being like, see you later, goodbye. Thanks for all you've done. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest each of you, in the house of her husband. Now, what I want you to see, again, remember we're talking about the relationship between love and sacrifice, is not just that Naomi is saying goodbye, and really not that she's just kind of in some vague way wishing, uh, you know, like, I hope things go well for you, good luck. Like, she is uh, concretely desiring the good of these two women, and she's willing to sacrifice in order to see them obtain it, okay? So I want you to see this. Let's kind of break down verses 8 and 9 again so you can see this. So she's really kind of wishing like two things in particular for their lives. They're very, very concrete. So the first is she's asking that God would bless them. Um, And in order for God to kind of like ask God to do this, like you see that Naomi sacrifices her bitterness. So she's asking for a blessing and she's giving up her bitterness. She says in verse 8, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Now, um, you see where it says in there, it says deal uh, kindly right there. The Lord deal kindly. Now, uh, in, in the original language, this was written in Hebrew. Uh, it's the word chesed. Um, Hebrew has like a lot of gutturals and pronunciation. But I'm not just doing that uh, for fun. Chesed. Uh, it would be spelled H-E-S-E-D. That's the way you typically see it spelled in English. And it's really a word um, that captured the love of God. And what she's asking, you know, and so in this culture, like, the love of God was not seen as kind of an emotion or as a feeling. Uh, It was covenantal. It was committed. Uh, It was, as kind of one author described it, it is somebody loving somebody else without an exit strategy. It is God setting his eternal, everlasting, covenantal, I'm not getting out of this, love on these women and helping them flourish as a consequence. And that's what she's asking. She's asking, God, would you set this upon these two girls? Now, it it seems like, okay, that's just a really nice thing to desire. But, like, in order for Naomi to ask this, I hope you understand that she also had to um, sacrifice tremendously. And particularly, she had to sacrifice feelings of bitterness. Now, it's interesting because later, in verse 13, if you look down a little bit in the story, um, Naomi points out that she feels like the hand of the Lord has gone out against her. She says that, the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Now, here's what's astounding to me. I don't know if you're anything like me. Maybe you're much kind of more thoughtful than me. Uh, But for me, um, I tend to, if I really want something and I don't get it, I tend to not be happy when somebody else gets it. Anybody else like this? So like, the one thing you want is the job. The one thing you want is to get married. The one thing you want is to have babies. Uh, It doesn't happen for you. And then all of a sudden, somebody close to you does get the job or does get proposed to or does get pregnant. Like, you're not like, I'm so happy for you. You're like, 
I'm so happy for you. You're like grinding your teeth. And it's like, excuse me for a second. I need to go into my room and scream into a pillow. I'll be back in like 10 to 20 seconds. And then we can continue this conversation. I mean, we're all like this. We tend to, if we're not getting something, we don't really celebrate when other people get it as well. But here's Naomi laying down any feelings of bitterness, saying, you know, I really feel like God is not blessing me, but I really eagerly desire that he blesses you. I mean, that requires a tremendous amount of sacrifice. But her sacrifice even gets more tangible when you kind of skip down and look at verse 9. She also desires for these women that they would get a new future from God, that they would get a new future from God. And in order for that to happen, Naomi would have to sacrifice her own future. So she wants a future, a new future um, for these girls, and she knows she's going to have to sacrifice her own future. Look at verse 9. It says, The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now, again, uh, kind of a key word in there is when she says rest, that you may find rest. That word rest is tremendously rich. It's used over and over again in the Old Testament. And where it's used um, most recognizably is to refer to the promised land. Um, The people of God, if you know prior to this, are wandering in a wilderness decade after decade after decade, searching a place of rest where they finally, you know, life is finally okay. And she's saying, that's ultimately what I'm desiring for you two ladies, that in this culture dominated by men, where to not have a man in your life means you're not going to have rest. I mean, it's why she says, I hope that you find rest in the house of your husband. Like, get married, have babies, be absolutely okay. Now, again... I hope you understand, like, this is not just a good desire. Like, Naomi is willing to, to tangibly sacrifice in order for them to be able to uh, get this. Like, what Naomi understands is that in order for these ladies to have a new future, she is going to have to kill her own, her own hopes for a new future. That in order for these two women to have a new family and to have a new hope and have a new beginning, she is going to have to destroy the little bit of family and friendship she has left. Like, she understands this. It's not like these women can remain committed to her, and then they can show up at parties and, like, meet guys. Like, can you imagine how that would go? Like, they're meeting guys at parties, and they're like, hey, who's the old woman you came with? Like, oh, it's just my mother-in-law. Oh, yeah, like, but don't worry about it. Like, her sons are dead. So, you know, like, who, like, what guys, like, cool, like, can I get your number after that? You know, it's like, like, Naomi knows this. She's like, I got to get out of your life. I got to get out of the picture. And so in order for you guys to meet people and to have husbands and to have babies, I got to let you guys go. You're my only family that I have left, but I'm going to lay it down because this is what's best for you. And it's deeply emotional. I mean, everybody knows kind of what it is that she's saying and what she's willing to sacrifice and what she's willing to get up, which is why At the very end of verse 9, it says, Then she kissed them, which is the way you would say goodbye in this culture. And they lifted up their voices, and they wept. Which then brings us to the second person's sacrifice. We said we're going to look at four, and let's look at the second. We look at then Ruth's sacrifice. We look at the way that Ruth then responds to kind of the offer that her mother-in-law brings. It's interesting because, I mean, at this point I am like, See ya, peace. But look at verse 10. Um, Then they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Now, here's the interesting thing about verse 10 is what we find out later in the story is really, um, at least for one of these women, this is really them just kind of being nice. It's kind of like when you go out to dinner and somebody offers to pay for you and you always feel obligated to be like, no, 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 I can get it. Like you may not even have your wallet with you, but you're like, I got it, you know, and you're really hoping they don't kind of call your bluff. And, um, you know, that's basically what's going on here, because we're going to see later Orpah's like, you know, like, see you later. 
Um, but she does that, and then Naomi's like, no, I insist. You know, you, you imagine the scene, like, I, I got it. No, 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 I insist. And she even goes through kind of a line of reasoning, like, in case you don't understand kind of how foolish it is to intertwine your life with mine, let me just give you, like, a list of practical reasons. So she just, like, starts firing him out in verse 11. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. So she, reason one is just, like, I've got nothing to offer you. You know, I got absolutely nothing to offer you whatsoever. Um, I don't have a husband. I don't have sons. There's no reason for you to really be in relationship with me because I can't give you anything whatsoever. She goes on and continues from that as well. She says, if I should say I have hope, uh, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, verse 13, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? So she's given reason too. Like, even if I did have something to offer, you got to wait a long time for me to offer you anything. Um, and you shouldn't wait on me. Like, you shouldn't miss out. You should kind of, like, actualize your potential. Uh, because, like, even if I met somebody tonight, and even if I had sons tonight, like, it's still going to be a long time before it's not weird for you guys to marry them. Like, that's basically what it is that she's saying here. And then she finishes it with, No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out uh, against me. So reason three, she's basically like, And my life is blowing up. And it would just be better if you're not around me. Like, I don't want your lives to be impacted. I don't want you to be collateral damage uh, as my life kind of explodes. Like, you go, go away, do your own thing, actualize your potential, get away. And again, the emotion is, is very deep. Look at verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. Um, and then we see kind of the two daughters-in-law, they respond in two very different ways. So, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. Remember, we just said that this was the way you would say goodbye. So Orpah's like, Peace, see ya. Like, she starts walking down the road back to Moab. But look at this. But Ruth clung to her. She clung to Naomi. So Orba's convinced, and, and Ruth clings to her. And it's interesting because where it says there, she clings to her, um, this is actually the same word that was used all the way back in the Garden of Eden to describe the very first marriage where it says that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Like, this is more than a hug. This is Ruth binding herself to Naomi for life. This is more than just, like, a long goodbye. This is Ruth essentially saying, look, Naomi, like, I understand that you asked God to show chesed love to me. And what I'm going to do in return is I'm going to express chesed love to to you. I'm going to love you without an exit plan. I'm going to lay down my future. I'm going to lay down the prospects of me getting married. I'm going to lay down the prospects of me having babies. Uh, I'm going to lay down uh, my life going exactly the way that I hoped it would go. Um, and I'm going to cling to you. Like, I hope you see that. Like, in this moment that Ruth is clinging to this aged mother-in-law who can offer her absolutely nothing, she is letting go of her hopes and dreams for the future. It's unbelievable. It's, I mean, it, it really is an unbelievable. It, it is a challenging scene of sacrifice because I think for many of us, especially the way we were raised, like all of us, we were kind of raised, like the one thing you protect are your hopes and your dreams, right? Like that is the one thing that you make sure that you never let go. You don't, you, you don't sacrifice for anybody. You be who you want to be. You actualize your potential. You make your dreams come true. And here's the story of tremendous love where Ruth lets all of that go in the name of loving this woman who can really offer almost nothing in return. 
It's D. It's heavy. Now, it's interesting. I was reading um, a commentary on this, and I thought this guy was super academic, but I thought he made, like, a really great point. I'm not criticizing being super academic, but it was just, like, so practical and challenging to me. He, he, said, um, he said, one can understand the response of Orpa, but one must emulate the response of Ruth. That's what he said. He said, like, as we think about kind of this in our lives, one certainly understands the way Orpa responds. Be like, okay, like, here's a better offer. I'm going this way. Uh, but one must emulate the response of Ruth. And so that, you know, we said we were going to talk about four people, and we've talked about Naomi, and we've talked about Ruth, and now that brings us to the third person. Let's talk about you. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about uh, us to think to ourselves, like, how is it uh, that we kind of live this out uh, in our own lives? Now, I, here's how I kind of wanted to um, do this, because this is big, and we're going to talk a lot about this next week uh, as well. I, I just kind of want to start introducing, maybe thinking about your relationships through this lens, and uh, your family and your kind of whoever it is that God's put in your life. Um, well, what I want to ask you is, like, what does it really look like for you to sacrifice for love? Kind of return to our initial question. Like, what does it practically look like for you to sacrifice for love? And maybe just to kind of, that's a big question. So let's make it practical and let's have it stem from the text. I really want to challenge you maybe from the example of these two women that we've learned from, maybe to ask ourselves two very deep and critical questions as we think about the people in our lives. Um, the first, really from the, the example of Naomi, I would ask you, um, is I, will I study another and really fight for their good? Like, will I study and fight for the good of another? That's deeply challenging to me when I see this and I see Naomi. You know, I, I think if we're just kind of transparent, when we think about relationships in our lives, we tend to enter into the relationships in our lives as consumers, don't we? We come to consume uh, largely more than we can to give. And I think, you know, I, I'm not trying to be super critical here, but it's just like, just think for a second about, like, the things you do, the people you're friends with, um, the person you married, all of that. Like, at least, you know, maybe it's changed now that you've been kind of in that person's life or there for a long period of time. But initially, at least, I, like, my guess is you probably entered into that relationship for fairly selfish reasons, like, I'm coming into this because I find you attractive, and I like the idea of being with somebody who's attractive. I think it'll help me. Like, it's, it's good for me uh, for you to be attractive, and I like your personality, and I like that we can be friends, and I like that you make me happy. Like, I, I feel like very few people enter into friendships or marriages or jobs or even churches with the posture of, like, you know why I can't wait to be around these people? I can't wait to figure out what their deepest need is and to meet it, even if it doesn't benefit me whatsoever. I haven't met anybody, like, at the beginning of premarital counseling who's like, I can't wait to do that. It's like, I look forward to, like, having somebody to hang out with on a Friday night because it stinks to, like, have to figure out what to do on a Friday night. And I think that consumerism then, you know, I mean, it's, it's amazing then that we're surprised that marriages and friendships and relationships are often combative and dysfunctional when, like, two consumers enter into them. I mean, it works as long as kind of, like, our needs overlap, but what happens when our needs don't overlap anymore? All of a sudden, we become too lobbyists, you know, kind of, like, trying to jostle for our position. Uh, we then go from being a lobbyist a lot of times to a combatant who, like, lob truth grenades about, like, don't you understand? Like, here's why I'm right. Here's why the world works this way. And then a lot of times we just take it up another notch and we just say, fine, like, I'm going to find a way to wound you. I give you the silent treatment. I'm just going to avoid you. I'm going to leave the relationship and just say goodbye. Absolutely. Goodbye. See you. And here's Naomi entering into a relationship 
studying the needs of another, saying, this is what you really need, and I'm going to sacrifice in order for you to get it, even though it hurts me. I don't just get nothing out of it. I get hurt as a consequence of it. And I just, I mean, I've really tried to examine myself to say, like, is there anybody in my life that I'm doing this with? Or do I ultimately walk into every single room? Do I ultimately walk into my family? Do I ultimately walk into my workplace to take and to consume and me, 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 and I, I, I? I think I would just, again, we're not trying to say, like, fix this tomorrow and do this with everybody tomorrow, but maybe just start thinking critically, like, what would it look like with a single person to start really studying, like, here's what you need, and here's how I'm going to give it to you, even though I don't benefit as a result. Like, that's what Naomi is doing, and it is unbelievably challenging to me. It should be very challenging to you as well. Now, from Ruth, uh, what I would challenge you to maybe ask then is to say, what will I lose in order to really love another or to fully love another? Like, what am I willing to lose in order to really or fully love another? Now, I'm going to try not, this is a really, I think this is even a weightier question for us to ask about our relationships. Uh, It's why kind of next week we're going to flesh this out much more practically. I'm just trying to kind of like introduce this idea. Um, I was reading a counselor this week who wrote a book, and he said, he was kind of talking about this concept, and he said, at the center of love is loss and even death. He said, at the center of love is loss and even death, which this is why like, Some of you are like, whoa, (laughs) like, no thanks. Like, I don't want to sign up for that. Um, But I just kind of want to, tonight we'll, or tomorrow, next week, (laughs) we'll flesh that out. And tonight I just kind of want to help you maybe, like, familiarize yourself with this concept, maybe start thinking about it. Um, I think that this really isn't even that difficult of a concept for us to wrap our minds around. Um, I think really, here's the reality. I think all of us know that if we're really going to love somebody, like, we are going to have to lose something in return. I think a lot of times what's pitched to us, if we kind of return to our initial idea, is that um, you can kind of gain love and give up nothing, and that's simply not true. And so, like, for those of you who are single, uh, by the way, I mean, many of you know my wife is in Taiwan right now, and uh, I'm kind of living, like, a functionally single life right now, and, like, I have, like, a new appreciation, especially for those of you who are single. But I think one of the great benefits of being single is, like, you have a ton of options, You have a ton of freedom. You have a ton of kind of opportunity. Um, You know, like somebody can text you at 1 a.m. and be like, do you want to go to Taco Bell? And you can say yes. Like, you shouldn't say yes. It's gross. But, like, you can say yes if you want to say yes. Like, you have all this kind of freedom and all these options and all these choices. And here's the deal is, like, if you're going to be a really good friend, like, some of those choices are going to go away. So, like, even something as small as, like, hey, I'm going to be a really good friend, and when I told somebody on Monday that I'm going to have dinner with them on Friday, and it seems like it's going to mean a lot to them, um, I'm not going to say, okay, yes, but in the back of my mind, but I'm going to kind of take more offers of things to do, and if I get a better offer on a Friday, then I'll text you about 30 minutes before we're supposed to get together, say something came up, and bail on you. Like, that's not being a good friend. And so for you to really love a friend means, like, There's loss, right? There's loss where maybe your options were here and all of a sudden they become 
here. There's, there's a death of some of those options. And even some of that autonomy to be able to do exactly what you want, when you want, kind of no matter whatever other, no matter what other commitments you might have. Or for those of you who are married, you know exactly what this is like as well. I mean, for you to get married, there was a loss, there was in many ways a death of your independence. Now, in a lot of ways, culture bucks against that, and they criticize that and say, well, that's why you should never get married. I mean, it's a hard thing. It's not a bad thing, but it is a hard thing. And all of a sudden, you are, I mean, you feel the weight of this. You used to be able to kind of say yes to anything at a moment's notice. Now you have to check with somebody. And so, like, you started to plan out dinners, like, two weeks in advance. You always criticize the married people for doing that, and now you are doing that. And, and I mean, you kind of, like, your, mar- your single friends are getting upset with you about that, and you really feel it, like... And because what's going on, the reason that's so hard, the reason that culture is so critical of that is because there's a death taking place. There's a death of autonomy and independence and options because you've committed yourself to one person for life and you kind of have to factor her into everything that you do. For those of you who have kids, you know this even more. I mean, you felt in many ways a death to your independence, a death to your future. I mean, again, I'm not trying to say that in terms of like it's terrible, but like, before you had kids, you were probably had a lot more freedom to kind of do whatever, whenever you wanted, and life could look exactly what you wanted to look like. But now you have kids, and you have to factor them into it, and you want to love them well. And there's probably even things that you've said no to that you really wanted to do, and you even had a dream of doing in the future because you have a little person, a little human being that you love, that you uh, bring into, who is a tremendous criteria in any decision that you make. I guess, I mean, yes, loss and death and sacrifice, it is at the center of authentic love. And I think a lot of times, um, you know, we're told as young people to run away from that and, you know, stay single and travel the world and don't have to, don't put roots down anywhere. And I'm telling you, I think what you're seeing here is that if you really want to love anyone, if you really are going to receive great love, you have to give tremendous sacrifice as well. Like you are. Like, at the heart of being a good friend, at the heart of being a good church member, at the heart of being a good employee, at the heart of being a good family member, at the heart of being a good spouse, at the heart of being a good parent, is loss. With the belief that there will be a much greater gain, a much greater reward of true, authentic love in the future. And that, because, I mean, it's heavy, it's kind of frightening. Again, we're going to flesh it out next week. So if you're already, like, bucking against it, just come back next week, and I'll, I'll try to explain it even better. But... I think what's most important is understand that kind of like in light of all of that, what you, what's really most important for you to understand, you know, we've talked about the sacrifice of Naomi, we've talked about the sacrifice of Ruth, we've talked about your sacrifice, but I think the most important person sacrifice to understand is the sacrifice of Jesus. Like all of this, like a story like this, we believe every story of the Bible whispers in the name of Christ. And a story like this, not as just about like, great sacrifice in a family relationship, but ultimately points to the ultimate sacrifice that has been done for us so that we can be loved and forgiven by God. And not only that, but empowered to live this type of sacrificial, loving uh, way in the relationships in our lives that matter the most. You know, we wrestle with the question, like, well, what does it really look like for me to study the best of somebody else and give it to them even if it doesn't benefit me? I mean, That is at the heart of the mission of Jesus Christ. Like Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, stepping out of heaven into history so he can perfectly empathize and understand the struggles of humanity. So he can see firsthand the consequences that sin brings, the dysfunction and the heartbreak. And he can not only study it, but he can do something about it. 
He can take the consequences on himself at the cross. He is giving up his life for sin, even though it doesn't benefit him whatsoever because he's the one person in humanity who has never sinned. He is the ultimate example of what it means to look like in a relationship to study the good of another and give to that, to meet that need, even if it, out of a completely unselfish desire. I mean, we ask the question uh, of what does it look like to give up something, how death and sacrifice and loss is at the heart of love. I mean, that's ultimately what the cross pro- proclaims. That Jesus Christ, I mean, he is willing to not just lay down some things or just like a few, like he lays down everything. Like he, he offers his own life because he loves us. It is the biblical pattern of relationships. And the story of Ruth and Naomi is merely anticipating that. Naomi is willing to lay down her future. Ruth is willing to lay down her hopes and dreams of a husband and children. But Jesus is willing to lay down his life and to be crucified in our place for our sins. But not just that. That's not the end. We we talked about this last week. But the beautiful thing about this story, the beautiful thing about the story of Christianity is that loss and death is not the conclusion, but it's merely the prologue. It's not the end, it's merely the beginning because three days later comes resurrection and new beginnings and true, authentic power and love. And so I understand, it's like kind of a frightening idea when you use the word death and relationships in the same sentence. It's not like, well, yeah, like sign me up for that. Like, I'm ready, come back next week. Can't, you know, this is like the worst pitch in the world. But I think it's real. I think you're actually going to see what does it mean to really love a single human being well. That's what we want for you, because Jesus has loved us perfectly. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and we're going to celebrate that and give thanks for that. Um, we're going to do communion, but I'm going to pray, and then I'll explain where we go from here. Uh, Jesus, we thank you so much um, that as we even encounter really frightening things like the prospect of sacrifice um, in a culture that tells us we can have everything without giving up anything, um, that your word comes and becomes truth. It becomes lenses through which we can interpret our marriages and our relationship with our kids and our friendships correctly. Um, Everybody is talking about love, but very few people are defining it and telling us what it might cost us. And we think ultimately, thank you that ultimately that Jesus Christ is the example. I mean, he's not just the example. He is the one who paid it all dying in our place, taking on our sin, studying our relationship, and giving us exactly what it is that we need so we can flourish. And I pray that as we receive that, we would be changed by that and empowered by that, and we would be able to show that, I mean, not perfectly tomorrow, um, but maybe to our spouse this week, maybe to a child who's easier just to kind of manage rather than to shepherd and to love maybe for a friend that is easier to bail out on and to ignore and disappear from than it is to engage. I pray that we would be people who would model that type of countercultural, world-changing love in our relationships. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus who makes it possible. Amen.